Good morning, everybody. I'd love to have you uh, take out your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 4. Uh, Luke chapter 4 is uh, where we'll spend a little bit of time here this morning. If you need a Bible, there are red ones on the road that you're in, uh, possibly in the chair in front of you, or uh, on the bulletin insert, you can scan the QR code and follow along that way. It's good to be together this morning. Before we get into the sermon, I just want to say Happy Father's Day. Uh, Happy Father's Day to those of you uh, who are biological fathers, those of you who are adoptive fathers, those of you who are spiritual fathers. Uh, today is a day to celebrate men, um, and that's, uh, that's all men. That's boys, if you're a, a boy in the room, a young man, an uh, old-er man, I just want to celebrate you because uh, this is uh, you uh, as men in the kingdom of God have a really significant role to play. Uh, that God has put gifts inside of you that, uh, that He uses and wants to use for the benefit of others, for the benefit of us, for the church, for the kingdom of God, for your neighbors and coworkers and friends. And, uh, and so I hope, I hope today, um, men, I hope you feel loved. I know it's, like, it's not like a Father's Day thing to say, but men need love too, right? Uh, I hope you know today that God sees you. He sees you exactly as you are, and He loves you. You are completely known, and you are completely loved by your Father. And, and I hope you know that God has gifts that He's planted in you, and He wants to fan those into flame, and uh, He wants to use you in some pretty incredible ways for, uh, for those to, just to bless those around you. So I want to take a minute and just, just say uh, a prayer of thanksgiving and blessing on, uh, on the men in the room. So join me in prayer. God, thanks that, uh, first of all, that you're our Father, that, uh, that you model for us like just this, this perfect image of a loving Father. And so, God, we, we come to you and we know, God, that you love us and that you see us completely and fully, that there is nothing hidden, and yet you love us still. And so, God, I uh, just ask that your blessing would be on, uh, on every man in the room, God, that you would just form us more and more into your image, that, God, that we would know that we are created in your image and we have um, gifts that you put inside of us to, to use for the benefit of others and to bring others to your glory. And so, uh, God, I pray a special blessing on every man, um, and God, that you would um, just give us a sense of your presence, your hand on our lives, that we would feel God, your loving words to us saying, you are my son. You are my son, you are my child, and I love you. So God, uh, just pray, uh, pray for every man in the room, and we pray this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, all the ladies said, maybe, how about that? All the ladies said, come on. Fantastic. Well, um, we're in our second week of this series called Glocal Mission. Glocal Mission, where we're talking about the mission of God, and uh, we're talking about how the mission of God extends around the world. This has always been God's plan to, um, for for His purposes to to spread to the ends of the world, that all people on earth would would just come to know God's love and grace. It's been His plan since the very beginning. And what we've been talking about is there is this global push to the mission of God, but any place 
there are disciples of Jesus meeting called the church, any place that's happening, the kingdom of God or the, the mission of God, it's localized. It, it gets planted in local communities, in neighbors and friends and coworkers and families. That the kingdom of God is global, but it's always local. It's always personal. And so sort of looking at this and reminding ourselves that, uh, that not only are we able to be supportive of those who are living on mission around the world, today we still have journeyers on three continents. Um, we're excited that uh, they're starting to make their way back. They'll be traveling back this way, so pray for them. Our team in Thailand, team in Bolivia, as they head back over the next couple of days. Uh, so excited to hear their stories of, of just learning from what God's up to all around the world, and we engage with them when they come back. Um, you know, they're going to share here in a large group setting, but um, sit down with somebody and, and invite them to go out for, for coffee or, you know, have their family over and just talk. Ask them about what God is doing in their lives. Engage with them, because uh, I think it'll be a blessing for us. Um, <clears throat> but as we do that, it also then reminds us to be able to say, hey, we are on mission here too. Like our neighborhoods are places of mission. Our homes are mission centers. Our, our, our workplaces uh, are places that God has called us. And we have to keep reminding ourselves of this because it's really easy to forget. I mean, it's really easy to just get swept away in the current of things we have to do. Like our schedules and our busyness. And we have to keep reminding ourselves that the mission of God doesn't necessarily change where we go, but it does change how we go. It changes how we see the people around us. It changes how we interact with them and how we have conversations. And so uh, as you're in the summer and as you're maybe out and about or you're going to ball games or going to the lake, just like whatever it takes for you to remember, I am a missionary in this place. Like God is, God is calling me, is using me, wanting to use me to bring about uh, his his mission. I think we just have to keep reminding ourselves of that. Last week we talked about how God's mission, this global mission of God, it'll usually take shape in compassion. Like it's going to involve compassion. Um, and we talked last week about how compassion literally means to suffer with. To suffer with. That's what compassion is. It's suffering with others. Uh, compassion isn't something we do to people. Um, I'm going to compassion on you. Or it isn't something we do for people, but it's something we do with people. Compassion has to come off of its higher ground and to say, no, no, I'm not doing this to you. I'm not doing this for you. I, I want to be with you. And whatever happens, whatever happens in your life, whatever happens through the things that maybe we do together, that doesn't matter as much as the relationship. Compassion is always with. Um, and we talked then last week, just so we're all on the same page, about how the mission of God we can summarize it in Jesus' words in his prayer that he taught us to pray. The Lord's Prayer says, uh, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, we could say, if you're going to ask the question, what is the mission of God? It's that God's kingdom would come, his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's that more and more, the movement, if you read the Bible, the movement of the scriptures isn't so much us going up and away somewhere else, but it's up and away coming here. The, the very last, uh, the last two chapters of the Bible are fascinating. Uh, Revelation 21, I won't go into it very much, but you can read it later today. Verse, first five verses, Revelation 21, it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. This is the kingdom of God. This is heaven. This is the place where God's will is always done. It's God's rule and his reign and his government and his life. And it says the kingdom of God, the new Jerusalem, comes down 
out of heaven from God as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And God says, look, my dwelling place is now among the people, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. The movement of the Bible is heaven coming here. And God's kingdom, God's rule, his reign, his government, he's wanting to use us as a part of that. And so, what does it look like when the kingdom of God comes? Like, what does it look like when through, like, these small acts of faithfulness, through, through God's, through his spirit moving in our lives and his rule and reign come? What does it look like? Well, Jesus doesn't just let us wonder about that, but his life is the embodiment of the kingdom, right? I mean, Jesus is the kingdom in flesh and blood. It, his life is what it looks like when God's will is done all the time, perfectly. And so when Jesus begins his ministry here in Luke chapter 4, uh, we get a, a great glimpse of, like, the kingdom agenda. What does God really care about? And so take a look in, in Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. Jesus is actually, he's in a synagogue in his hometown in Nazareth. He opens the scroll to Isaiah 61, and he just quotes Isaiah 61. He says this, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus gives us a glimpse of what it looks like, the, the, the platform of his ministry. Jesus had just finished being tempted in the wilderness, and he comes back, and this is his very first sermon. He says, this is what my life is going to be about. This is what the kingdom of God looks like. And he says a couple of things. He says, first of all, the kingdom of God is good news for the poor. For the poor. Now here's a question. Was Jesus talking about like real poor people or spiritually poor people? I mean, we're talking like, was Jesus talking about people who maybe physically don't have a home or don't have enough food or don't have clothing um, or resources? It was Jesus talking about like the good news is good news for the poor, or was it like spiritually poor, like those of us who have like sort of deep emotional wounds and spiritual wounds? Which was it? Good news for the poor. The answer is yes. The kingdom is good news for the poor. Those who are, yes, spiritually poor, and yes, those who are, are in this physical place of not having enough resources. God cares about it all. Jesus spent his life caring for the poor, those who were on the margins of society. And, um, and so when the kingdom of God comes, we have this really great glimpse that God is going to care for the poor, and he wants to do it through our lives. Do you know that the, in the Bible there are th over 3,000 verses that talk about God's heart for the poor? 3,000 verses that talk about God's heart for the poor and God's commission to his people to care about the poor. This is not some sort of tangible, tangent of an issue. This is central to God's heart. And sometimes what we tend to do, like especially here in, in the West and in like the evangelical church, is we separate this out. Well, God really cares about spiritual needs, and if physical needs end up getting met in the long run, that's great, right? But God, what God really cares about is saving people and the, the condition of our souls. And, and what Jesus says is like, that's a false separation, of course he cares about saving us. Of course he gave his life to take away our sins so we can be connected to the Father and, and have his life in us. 
But the moment we are sort of filled with his life, he also wants to send us on mission, and that is going to include caring for the needs of the poor. You can't separate the two. Yes, God wants to save people. He also wants them to have meaningful work to do. He wants them to have access to a job and, and have their needs met. God cares about it all. Anything that stands in the way of human flourishing, God wants to get rid of that barrier. Uh, as Jesus says uh, the, the good news is actually good news for the oppressed. He came to set the oppressed free. So is this like physically oppressed people? Like where systems are sort of keeping people in bondage? Or is this like spiritually oppressed people? Again, the answer is yes. You can't separate that out. Of course God cares. Uh, Jesus, in his ministry, he, he heals people who uh, had sort of demonic oppression. I mean, he, he cleanses them. Uh, but he also spends his life with the oppressed, those who are pushed aside. He, he touches lepers who are untouchable. He elevates the status of women and calls women to be his disciples, women who were not given that privilege. Do you know that women were the first, I said this on Father's Day, maybe this is more of a Mother's Day sermon, women were the first people to witness the resurrection, and women were not sort of able to testify in court in the first century. And who are the, the good news of the resurrection, the greatest news of the world has ever heard, who was it first entrusted to but women at the tomb? And so Jesus is empowering those who are oppressed. He, he, he is constantly talking about like non-Jewish people, outsiders who God is moving toward, and outsiders are going to end up being insiders. Jesus speaks well of like Roman oppressors. He, he even says like to the Roman centurion, he says like, I haven't seen faith like him in all of Israel. Like he's constantly, constantly reaching toward the, the outsiders. Yes, God cares about spiritual oppression, and he cares about physical oppression, and if we, if we are going to commit ourselves to the kingdom of God, it's going to pull both of these together, spiritual needs and physical needs, and we're not going to play the game of separating. Which one does God really care about? Because he cares about it all. Salvation is holistic. It starts from the inside out. It starts when our hearts turn toward God, and the moment our hearts turn toward God, God then sends us on mission, and God wants to restore every part of our lives. One person who I, I, I think embodied this really beautifully is John Wesley. Have you guys heard of John Wesley? He's kind of the founder of Methodism, uh, the Methodist Church, and um, he uh, actually the word like Methodist, that name getting attached to this this church, was kind of a derogatory term. Uh, it, it got put on them by folks who didn't like him very much. Uh, it, it happened because they were so methodical. He was, Jonathan, uh, John Wesley was raised in a, a, a pretty strict home where his mom sort of ran a pretty tight ship, homeschooled her kids, and had these very strict methods of how she educated her kids. And it made a huge difference in his life. And he loved that just sort of like, s- that structure. And so uh, he, he grew up with just this passion. He was saved from a fire, a house fire, uh, at the age of five. And like his mom just said like you were like a, um, I forget the words, but you were like plucked from the fire. And so it, it changed his life. And so he gave his life to ministry. And so he was ordained in the Anglican church and he was passionate about social issues. Uh, this is at a time in England when there is no middle class. You either have the upper class or the working class. There, there's no middle class. You've seen Downton Abbey right, or whatever. Uh, that's what you have. You have the, the, the sort of the aristocrats and the, the servants, working class. And he was passionate about serving the poor, those who were just 
who, who are physically poor. And so he, he starts this ministry, and he's passionate. He gets these people together, and he, he puts them, they call them bands. They're like practicing spiritual disciplines, and they're confessing sin to each other. I mean, it's no joke. And then he sends them out to serve the poor. And so he starts this ministry, and people start calling him Methodist. And Jonathan Wesley actually comes to the United States to start this movement here, and he fails. Um, Jonathan Wesley initially, like, it was all sort of outside in. He, he sort of cared about these social issues, but he was missing this piece of, like, inner spiritual transformation. And so he fails as a missionary in the United States. He dejected, after a couple years, he ends up going back to England where he bumps into these Anabaptists, these Moravians, German folks. And they start talking to him about salvation through the grace of God received by faith. Not because you're serving the poor, not because you're doing all this great stuff, but God just gives his grace to us. It's what Jesus did, and we can receive it just by faith, by opening our hearts up to it. And, and so he's having these conversations, and one of his mentors, this Moravian um, minister, he, he says, you know, John, you're not far from the kingdom. Like, you're like right on the edge of the kingdom. And so one night, Jonathan Wesley, he... Um, he goes to this meeting, which he was apparently reluctant to go to. He, he left us a journal so we can kind of read back through his stuff, which is great. But he goes to this meeting, and he's sitting in this meeting. And, and John, Jonathan Wesley was a better speaker than anyone in the room. And he's sitting there listening to this guy talk about the goodness of Jesus. And John, Jonathan Wesley all of a sudden says, And I felt my heart strangely warmed. He just has this inner turn of the heart where something clicks the coin drops in the slot and all of a sudden God's presence God's love God's spirit just floods him and he walks out of the meeting and it changed everything for him all of a sudden now he's bringing together these two aspects of the kingdom this spiritual inner transformation salvation and then this passion to serve the poor Jonathan Wesley got kicked out of all the churches in England they shut their doors on him so he starts preaching out in the fields and he just, like, it's muddy and mucky. It's not like these beautiful, like, rolling meadows. And, and thousands of people, these working class folks, are coming to him to hear this good news. And then they're being sent out on mission. And it's this beautiful, beautiful picture of what happens when the kingdom of God is moving. Jonathan Wesley, uh, they estimate he rode about 250,000 miles on horseback throughout his life. That's a quarter of a million miles on horseback. He walked, apparently, like this. Um, I don't know that. Um, they say he preached about 40,000 sermons. 40,000 sermons. And on his deathbed at the age of 88, the last letter he wrote was to William Wilberforce to say, keep up the fight against the slave trade. Keep working. Don't, don't lose courage. Keep working for the abolition of slavery. And so Jonathan Wesley, I think, paints this great picture of the kingdom of God. What does it look like when the kingdom of God comes? Yes, there, I mean, spirit, it's going to begin inside of us with this reality of God's transformation, but then it is going to extend to every part of our community. And so um, how many of you have heard the word slacktivism? Is that a word you're familiar with? Any slacktivists in the room? I can tend to be a slacktivist. Here, let me define this. Slacktivism is when we mistake being a part of God's mission for liking something on social media. I really care about racial reconciliation. I mean, I'm passionate about it. Eric, what are you doing? I'm liking stuff on Facebook all the time. 
Like, you know, I'm, I'm hearting things on uh, Twitter, and I'm retweeting things, and like, that's, man, I, I'm passionate about this, but what are you doing? Well, that's what I'm doing. You know the phrase, like, I'll stop at nothing. Like, we say that because we're so passionate. To just post something on social media is literally to stop at nothing. It, if it doesn't cost us something, it's probably not a part of God's mission. It's not what God had in mind. And so we, can, we, we live in this world where we can kind of say, like, man, I'm so passionate about this thing. And the only thing that would give evidence to it is what we are saying on social media. And if it isn't, if we don't have skin in the game, if I'm not reaching my hand across racial barriers, if I'm not actually involved in it, I really don't care about it. If it doesn't cost us something, it probably isn't accomplishing the mission of God as God intends. Does that make sense? So we, it's a challenge to us. Like, don't settle for slacktivism. Um, and so Darla Fisher is going to come. Darla uh, has, has been here before. I invite you to come up, Darla. And she's going to help just kind of flesh this out for us a little bit. Uh, Darla is a part of the church. And, oh, you need a microphone. Sorry about that. Number 13, David. Um, and so we've interviewed Darla before. And she is just finished up her second year as the principal at Lincoln Elementary, which is just like two and a half miles down the road. And, um, yeah, just, like, Darla, I see you as a person who is holding these two things together of you have these deep spiritual convictions and you are giving your life away to care for these kids and their families. And so thank you for, uh, for taking the time to be here and, and just for what you're doing in our community. So how do we do this? How do we do well at doing good? And I think one of the, the starting places for us is the, the example of Jesus in his incarnation. That Jesus, in, in John uh, chapter 1, verse 15, in the message, it says, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. It's with. It's, it's relational. That God didn't save us from a distance. He didn't save us from the comfort of heaven. He put on our skin and walked around in it for a while, and it was messy for him. If, if we're going to engage in God's mission, it's going to be messy. There's this picture that Darla um, showed me the other day, and I thought it was, like, super powerful. You want to tell us about this, this picture? Sure. This is a little guy at our school, um, kindergartner, who at the beginning of the year didn't even want to come in the building. Um, and so we've been working with him. We've been working with mom. We've actually tried working with sister. Um, to try to help this little boy come in. He shows up every day, just like this hand shows you. Um, in fact, the first time I saw him, I thought, somebody's got to wash his face. <laughs> mm. Because he was black here. <laughs> Gross. Because his nose runs all the time, and so he's out playing, and it's just this all the time, and it's just like, ooh, somebody needs to wash his face. Mm. So that's really how we started, was washing his face. Um, then we finally got him to where he would come in the first set of doors, not coming in the rest, but continuing to work with him, work with mom, to get him in, to love him, to show mom and to show him that we love you, we care about you, we care about your kids, and we want him at our school. He is really not very lovable. <laughs> when you look at him, you're going, ooh, you know, particularly with my little white sweater on. <laughs> um, but when I, at the end of the year, you can see in this picture, we had developed a relationship with him and his family. It's dirty. You see in this picture, my white middle-class hand 
but you see this little precious little guy that we have been able to love. He comes into school now. It's not perfect. We got a lot to do. Mm. But walking beside him, walking beside with his family and helping them to know that they are loved and that they are important um, is a big piece of yeah. what we do. Yeah, I love, like, this picture just shows the collision of two worlds, doesn't it? Like, incarnation, um, that you are crossing barriers to love him and to just be with him. And, um, and so as Darla is just talking about what God has called her to there at Lincoln, uh, be thinking about what does this look like in, in your life? Like, what, where are the relationships where, where God is asking you to cross barriers, to, to get dirty, uh, to put flesh and blood on the good news of Jesus. Um, we, can do, we can do lots of damage when we try to do good. We try to help people. We talked some about that last week. Um, and so one of the questions about how we do well at doing good, I want to just read a scripture from 2 Kings 4, 1 to 7. And I think this can become for us like a working model of what does it look like to do well at doing good. Um, so this is, this is the story. It says, The wife of a man from the company of the prophets cried out to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, was dead, and you know that he revered the Lord. But now his creditor is coming to take away my two boys as his slaves. Let me hear the crisis. So Elisha replies to her. He asks her a question, How can I help you? And he asks her a second question, Tell me, what do you have in your house? Your servant has nothing there at all, she said, except a small jar of olive oil. Elisha said, go around and ask all of your neighbors for empty jars. Don't just ask for a few. Then go inside, shut the door behind you and your sons, pour the oil uh, into the jars, and as each is filled, put it to one side. So she left him and shut the door behind her and her sons. They brought the jars into her, and she kept pouring. While all, until, or excuse me, When all the jars were full, she said to her son, bring me another one. But he replied, There is not a jar left. Then the oil stopped flowing. She went and told the man of God, and he said, Go, sell the oil, and pay your debts. You and your sons can live on what is left. Like, one of the things I love about this is he, Elisha, doesn't just assume he knows what a problem is. He asks her a question, like, how can I help you? How how do you see that, like, in, just in your life? Like, just coming from a place of, what do you need? I have a young mom. Um, who has several kids at our school, she came to me last year. So she and I have developed this relationship over about a year and a half. And she said, we like this school, but I am living a life that I cannot continue. I have to get my kids out of this situation that I'm living in. And she said, we're going to move to Oklahoma. And she said, I think I've got support there. I've got a job waiting. I'm going to go there. And I said, bless you, go. But two months later, she was back, and she said, things fell through. I couldn't make it there. It couldn't raise my family. I couldn't. She said, I'm back. I said, great. We want you. Come in. We're going to love you. We're going to love your kids. She came to me this year, and she said, Darla, my life is in shambles. We are not in a safe place. My kids are not safe. I am not safe. I have to move out of this cycle that we're in, and I don't know how to do it. 
And I said to her, how can we support you? Hmm. What can I do for you? And she came back to me a while later, and she said, I didn't know. And then, just through relationships and just through listening to her story and walking side by side with her, um, we had a community block party um, in our area um, at the end of school, and there were about 500 people there. And so it just, she came and with her kids, and, you know, I introduced her to a few people that were there, and a few days later, she comes to school, and she says, Darla, you know that one person that you introduced me to? I'd really like to talk to them. I said, you got it. Picked up the phone, said, hey, could you come and meet with her? And they said, yeah, we'll come over. A couple hours later, they were over and having this dialogue about supports that they might be able to give to help her as she's working out of this cycle. She came back later and she said to me, there's got to be more. You have to help me with more. And so helping her connect with another group that can help her move through this process. But the deal is... I'm not fixing it. Our school is not fixing this for her or for her family. We are supporting her. We're helping to connect her with different people that might be able to help her with her needs. She is smart. Mm. She is a problem solver. She has got skills that I don't have. Mm -hmm. But when I hear her story, I mean, I looked at her and I said, you're living a bad movie. The stories that you tell me, I do not identify with. But I want you to know that whatever is happening, we are here for you and with you. Mm. Yeah, it's, I mean, this beautiful example of, again, the story in Second Kings, because Elisha doesn't assume he knows what her problem is. He just asks her, how can I help? And, uh, and then asks her the second question, says, what do you have? Like, he starts from a place of, like, you, you have gifts to offer. You're smart. You have, you know, things that are going to help you meet your own need. He doesn't start with a place of, you have nothing, and I need to do everything for you. And at first, she's like, I I don't know. I don't really have anything. Ah, I have this jar of oil. She says, great. We can use that. And then you think about, like, who's involved in the solution in this story, like in 2 Kings 4? I mean, she's involved in it. Her sons are involved in it. Her neighbors are involved in it. Elisha is involved in it. God is involved in it, in this miracle, and there's this communal solution to the problem. Um, and that's exactly what I hear you talking about, Darla, of just like this network of people. And, and for us to envision ourselves as connectors, we just help connect people into relationships mm-hmm. where they're going to be loved through this. And the implications in the story, you know, her debts are paid, her children are safe. That's short term, but what, what are the long term implications? We don't know. I mean, the future is wide open for this woman now. The future is wide open for these, these children who are being loved and realize, man, they have, they have a future. Mm-hmm. They have a future. So it's beautiful. Um, so for, for us, as we wrap it up, like what are, what are like simple next steps <clears throat> that you would sort of hold out to us that, that we can each take in our own, our own places? Sure. Um, at our school, as you can imagine, working in that environment and continuing to give the, these families, because it, we do feel like we are educating families, not just kids. My staff gets tired. They get worn out. 
I just went to a conference with six teachers this week, and one of the things that they talk about is celebrate what you're doing, celebrate your successes. And I looked at my teachers and I said, I have failed in this area. We celebrate our kids, we celebrate our parents when they do something awesome. I'm telling you, we are right there with the high fives, the hugs, the yahoos. But I don't do that with, I said, I don't do that with my staff. And they looked at me like I had three heads. And they said, are you kidding? Do you not remember that breakfast that you had for us when school was out? And I thought, you see that as a celebration? How awesome is that? Do you know who provided that breakfast? Journey Church provided that breakfast. The money that, um, when you've, if you've connected your Dylan's Plus card to an organization that gets gifts out of that, if you have connected Journey Mennonite Church to that, they have designated that they are going to use that money to support schools and staff. And so Eric, every once in a while, will say, hey, do you go, would you guys like lunch? Or, and I, this time I said, yeah, we'd like lunch, but we'd rather have breakfast at this time if you could do that. And we worked that out. But that was paid for with the funds that, that are generated through that Dylan's Plus card. So I would challenge you to connect your Dylan's Plus card um, to some organization. I think that Journey Church is just an awesome place for that to be. But then I think that the next step for that, because that's a one-time, just mm-hmm. go home and do it and get it there. Then each time you go and buy groceries and you use it or pump gas, every time you use that Dylan's Plus card, just rem- be reminded that I am using this, and out of this act, I'm helping someone. And if you've connected to Journey and that's coming to schools, choose a school or a staff member that you know that you can pray for. If you don't know a school or staff member, pray for Lincoln. Mm. Pray for, you've seen my face multiple times, pray for me knowing that I am leading and guiding and helping to direct. Mm -hmm. But I'm not the only one that needs this Mm -hmm. prayer. Mm -hmm. It is every person, every educator across this nation but in particular with Reno County. Yeah. Yeah. And if you want to take a step even more relational, um, they're always looking for volunteers uh, to, get, to get some training through communities that care and to just volunteer in the school one day a week. Uh, would love to have more people, more people doing that. Remember um, that in the kingdom of God, sometimes when we talk about the poor, we talk about the oppressed, we think, man, I need to do great things. I need to do something big and dramatic. In the kingdom of God, big is small. Uh, Mother Teresa said that not all of us can do great things, but we can all do small things with great love. In the kingdom of God, small is beautiful. So what are the small acts of faithfulness, the small acts of love, the small acts of compassion that you trust that God is going to use to bring his kingdom? God, thank you that your kingdom uh, is, is coming, is moving through your spirit, through your church. Um, God, just faithful men and women who are giving their lives to you. God, we ask that you would continue to use us that you would warm our hearts, and God, that you would send us on mission. God, we pray that all of these small acts of love and compassion and faithfulness, God, you would just use them um, to, to more fully give picture to your kingdom here and now in our community that we love so much.